Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clinton. And welcome to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Imagine yourself a clean slate, removed from society, with no idea of who you'll be, where you'll be, or what you'll have in a society. What should that society look like? What should the rules be? Who should be in charge? What freedoms would you want to have? What freedoms would you not want people to have? It's a difficult question, but it's an important one. And it's one in one way or another we've been trying to look at, both in the last episode about small government visions of liberal democracy, and we'll be looking at again today in our discussion of big government visions of liberal democracy. You're right, Philip. It is an important question. I think it has sort of been underlying a lot of what we've discussed in the past two episodes. Uh, our first episode, First Bird's Eye, was on basic definitions of you know liberal democracy. What's liberalism? What's democracy? How do they complement each other? How are they in tension? And how can you balance liberal freedom and democratic equality? Exactly. Right. And you know what what would democracy look like without liberalism? What would liberalism look like without democracy? And, you know, we sort of moved into a perspective on different models of, of liberal democracy last week when we discussed small government visions, we talked about economic neoliberalism and conservatism. And the question there, I think, was, can government, can the community prioritize freedom over equality and be successful? Is that a sustainable model? And our finding, I think, you know, maybe, maybe I think you agree, is no, it can't, right? There are these issues where under, you know, an econo- economic neoliberal model, it's too easy for, the, for individuals to consolidate mass amounts of wealth, which they can then use to undermine democracy, undermine equality, and ultimately undermine freedom by setting the rules of the society in the way that they... Freedom out of control is going to undermine equality. Right. And then freedom and democracy. Exactly. Right. That's what we're looking at. It does not work in the long term. In the long term, it doesn't work. And so this week, we're going to be looking at bigger government visions of liberal democracy. And we're going to be asking ourselves, in one case, can you have both maximum freedom and maximum equality? Mm -hmm. And in another case, we're going to be looking at, do we need to put equality before freedom sometimes to achieve a balance between the two? Mm -hmm. And the two cases we're going to be looking at are... Socialism, which is not really a vision of liberal democracy, but it's in ways a critique of liberal democracy, and it's useful to consider its beliefs and its theory, and exactly. also a case in which it, it was tried to be realized right. in, in, in the second half of the 20th century, and we'll talk about that. And socialism promises that you can have maximum freedom and equality. In fact, that maximum equality will bring maximum freedom. So we'll, we'll talk about, is that possible? Does it work? And we're going to be looking at social democracy which is the more moderated vision, I think, where it's trying to make a compromise between freedom and equality to get the best of both worlds as much Mm -hmm. as possible. And before we begin on those discussions, I think it's important just to point out something that's been happening recently in the news. Uh, Tucker Carlson, the popular Fox News host and pundit, uh, recently visited Hungary to speak with Viktor Orban. And If you've listened to our first episode of Bird's Eye, The Basics of Democratic Theory, you will remember our discussion, hopefully, about Viktor Orban and his version of democracy without liberalism and the dangers of it. And Tucker Carlson's been talking about how great Viktor Orban is and how great Hungary is and how great this democracy without liberals 
is, and I think he intentionally sort of confuses his listener uh, or confuses democracy without liberalism with democracy without liberals, when in fact they're you know very different. Right. Anyways, it just goes to show, it's a reminder of the fact that these debates and these discussions aren't academic, they're not theoretical, and they're not far away. Mm-hmm. They're happening right here at home, and they're happening on our TV stations, right. right? And on Twitter and online. And it's a reminder of just how important it is to consider those ideas. So if you've listened to it, hopefully, you know, it gives you some some food for thought about what's happening right now. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it's worth going back and checking that out. It's an important conversation to be considering. Yeah, I think that that is, it's very relevant to what we're talking about, and it will continue to be relevant, I imagine, in the future. And with that said, without too much further introduction, we can go ahead and get started on our discussion of big government visions of liberal democracy. And we're going to start with socialism, which, as we said, is not really a version of liberal democracy. It's more so a critique of liberal democracy. But the major question or critique at levels at liberal democracy is if people are trusted to choose their political leaders in a democracy, why aren't they trusted or empowered to choose their bosses or actually, you know, run companies themselves, Mm -hmm. for workers to own companies, for the community to own companies and the means of production. Right. Well, I just think that it's something that's really important to to chew on. You know, I think whether whether you consider yourself a socialist or whether you're, you know, adamantly opposed to to, to that philosophy, I think you have to sort of chew on that question, right? If if that level of trust exists for for workers, for, for citizens, right, who actually know theoretically less about politics and government than workers do about their workplace why don't we trust workers to to run the whole to run the show themselves and we'll have some reasons as to the why's and the why nots of that question but it is important and i think it sort of you know underpins our the whole discussion of socialism that, that we're having right now and it's the major critique of liberal democracy that's been debated over for the past 150 from the left right yeah, yeah that's the that's the main yeah. critique of liberal it's democracy one of the, from the, one left. Of the great lasting critiques it's lasted over a century and a half and so it's clearly worth thinking about yeah it's worth considering i think the i think the critique is much more potent at the theoretical level than at the practical level but i think that theoretical yeah. value has enduring importance and we're gonna and we're gonna get it just how it doesn't work practically right, right. so to begin it's let's just start with the core beliefs of socialism. Yeah, yeah. And the, I think the basic assumption, which you can find in the you know, opening pages of the Communist Manifesto, for example, is the idea that there is a fundamentally oppositional relationship between those who do labor and those who own capital, who, who own the means of production. And so just, right, most people know that that's sort of the basic assumption, but I think that that's important, right? Class conflict lies at the core of human history, our, you know, current politics, right, everything. And so for that, and, and liberal democracy is merely the latest phase in that class conflict. And so it has a strong critique of liberal democracy. And it believes that economic freedom is going to bring in equality, which is going to undermine freedom and democracy. That's right. one of the core beliefs, right? And from that, there's a belief that you've got to sacrifice that private economic freedom, that private personal economic freedom to the community, right. basically, to communal decision-making right. rather than individual decision-making. Right. And the way in which it thinks, as, as you 
mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the way in which socialism articulates the notion that freedom and equality can be both unified with each other and maximized is the idea that, you know, once a socialist system is instituted, the community collectively is free from exploitation and domination. Right. The promise is that once the community is free, then everyone in the community is free. And even though you're sacrificing that private, personal, economic freedom, you're really, because everyone is equal, you're really gaining a truer freedom, a freedom from domination by another individual. Right. Right. And so... So it's more emancipatory. Right. And so the central promise of socialism then is that when you maximize equality, you maximize freedom. You maximize real freedom. But the trouble of that promise is that that definition of freedom is... Well, it's a little difficult to wrap one's head around. So if you've been sitting here listening to us and asking yourself, what the hell do they mean when they say that? Well, that's because it, it, it's kind of difficult to make sense of it's, in the first place. Right, it's not quite intuitive. And I, I actually want to read a quote from one of my um, favorite philosophers, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. It's a, it's a great quote. It's a great quote. And it really illustrates just, just how incoherent this idea is. Yeah. So the idea is this. Whoever refuses to obey the general will, right, that being the will of the community, whoever refuses to obey the general will shall be constrained to do so by the entire body, which means only that he will be forced to be free. And that sounds like a contradiction in terms. I don't want to suggest that, you know, Rousseau is like a totalitarian thinker or anything like that. He was influential with the thought of Karl Marx. You can see, in, especially in a lot of Marx's earlier writings, actually some of which we're going we're gonna to link in the show notes, that influence is there. And you know, I think Rousseau is a much deeper thinker than that. He's a much deeper thinker than the quote in particular. But because of his influence on, on, on the future, on, on socialism, although he himself was not a socialist, it's definitely, I think it encapsulates this, this idea that this sort of counterintuitive notion of freedom leads to a greater freedom, the freedom of the community from exploitation, the freedom of the individual to negotiate the terms of that community. And that's what freedom is supposed to be. And of course, the core problem is that that's not what people think of as freedom. Yeah, I don't right? think anyone on the, in their day-to-day life really thinks like freedom is like freedom to... To do as the community, as a majority of the community decides right. is freedom. Or thinks of themselves as part of like a collective which moves as one, which is free, right? That yeah. the, 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 the all, that everyone can be subsumed, subsumed into one single body politic, which is almost like a, like a, like a being itself, right? Like That's a, like a beehive almost. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't think that's anyone's intuitive notion. I also think it ends up being so counterintuitive to be, I think, ultimately incoherent when you try and square it with our, you know, you know, our our intuitive definitions of what freedom is. Yeah. And the other problem that we encounter as we begin to look at socialism in practice is that it promises this communal decision-making and, you know, these communities will decide and it will be fully democratic and there will be a very small state, you'll be very free, and the community will decide. Well, the problem is that, as you can imagine, you've encountered this argument probably many times. If you look at the history of attempts at socialism, the really big examples, the Soviet Union and China. Well, neither of them have a small state. <laughs> yeah. And neither of them have very democratic communal decision-making. And so clearly there's, there's a tendency for there to be a problem there. But it's worth, when considering socialism and, and trying to look at it, to see if 
maybe there are better examples than the worst examples or better examples than the biggest examples. And in our case today, we're going to talk about Yugoslavia, which is a country that was. Yeah, which was a country, which which is a country that was. No longer exists. It existed from 1945 to 1990. Yeah, and the socialist form, the socialist federal republic of Yugoslavia existed from 1945 to 1990, and then it cannibalized itself in a, dis- a horrifying and brutal civil war over the course of the 90s. Yeah. So if you were to like go on a map looking for Yugoslavia, it's not there. It used to be right above Greece, right above Greece in southeastern Europe, some country, Serbia, um, Montenegro, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Croatia, a couple other countries. Now, today, constitute what Yugoslavia uh, used to be. And in Yugoslavia, in this example, we're looking at one might call market socialism. Right. So the goals of the Yugoslavian attempt at socialism was not just let's realize socialism. It was Let's try to realize the equality of socialism without central planning that you see in the Soviet Union right. during that period. But instead, let's try to use markets to promote equality and allocate resources equally. Right. And there's like a, there's an admission that markets, while flawed under the capitalist regime, might be harnessed for positive purposes because the allocation of resources through the market or allocation of scarce resources through the market is better in a wide variety of circumstances, although not all, than a centrally planned economy. And it's also worth noting, I think, just going back a little bit, that right, the, the goals of the, the man who was the president of Yugoslavia for almost its entire existence, right from 1950 to 1980, Josip Broz Tito, was to sort of chart a middle path between the United States and the Soviet Union, right? He actually, like, Yugoslavia was a, technically a socialist republic, but it broke off from the Soviet bloc, right, in the, in the, in the late 40s, early 50s. So the idea was that there was, there was a middle path to be charted where the market could be embraced, central planning could be set aside, but the workers would own the means of production, which is the core element of socialism. And so what does this really look like in practice? So the idea is that you have like self-managed companies, right? Companies where the workers are the managers or in which they elect someone to administrate, you know, to do the business of administration. And that there could be, you know, some competition, although probably limited competition between these self-managed enterprises for the purposes of allocating resources, right, throughout this, throughout the country. Because they're worker controlled, there is no private property. There's no individual that owns them. Right. 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 Everything is supposed to be communally communal owned. property. Right. Yeah. And because everything is communally owned in theory, that means that someone in a country that large, someone's going to have to play referee as to who gets what, where right. gets, you know, how things are managed at the at the broad scale, not at the company scale, but at the broad scale. And that leads to the, to our, our problems, right? The problems yeah. that we see. Yeah, because when you need a referee, it's going to end up being the state. Mm-hmm. And so while thing, everything is supposed to be communi- communally owned, it ends up leading to it looking a lot more like everything is state controlled and, and therefore really, in effect, state owned. Right. Or if not, if not, entirely state-owned, functioning with the heavy, heavy interference from the state when, you know, when, when, when the state saw fit to. Yeah. And when you have that, when you have that heavy role of the state in the economy, then there become really strong incentives for the party in power, which happened to be the Communist Party, not to tolerate political competition. Right. Because not only do you not want to lose out on that power for power's sake, you don't want to lose out on that power in case, you know, your political opponents then use that power to abuse you. 
Right. So what it led to in Yugoslavia was a one-party rule by the Communist Party. And when people, you know, tried to start opposition parties, for example, they'd throw them in jail. And so the, the, the takeaway from that is that when you try to do this community ownership thing, mm-hmm. it's going to end up looking a lot more like state ownership, which is going to be really conducive to one-party rule, which is going to really eliminate or diminish democracy. Yeah. It's important, I think, to remember that it, you know Yugoslavia was not the Soviet Union. It was a freer economy. It was a freer society, for sure. But that state interference was very much there. And I think, in particular, the Communist Party was embedded at every level of government. And, and not just at every level of government, the most influential workers in the workers' councils and stuff like that that were running companies tended to be also influential members of the of their local Communist Party or right. of the Communist Party. Right. And so the idea being that the costs of tolerating opposition go up, the more you have to lose, the higher the stakes are. Right. And you need, for the level of social organization, for the level of complexity of having a sort of a politically democratic society and, a, and an economically democratic society requires a huge amount of state organizing, right, of social organization by the state, which ends up abridging political democracy for sure, because I don't think anyone would argue seriously that Yugoslavia was a political democracy, that there was free right. and fair elections, competition Despite the for fact power. that they had five legislative chambers. Yeah, right. At point <laughs> none, of them, five. none of them were really democratic. Not democratic in the truest sense. The party was was in control, and it was yeah. a one-party state. Right? It's, uh, that, right, it's not, I think it's actually not all negative, though, with Yugoslavia. I think it is, in some ways, an instructive example because it shows that there is some value. It had relatively high levels of GDP growth. Its, its level of inequality was actually comparable-ish to, you know, other countries in Northern Europe at the, around the same time, which we'll maybe discuss a little bit in a, in a second, that to some extent, it's probably beneficial to extend the spirit of democracy beyond just the sphere of politics, right? That, you know, workers, you know, spend most of their time at their jobs and, you know, extending some level of democracy into that sphere of life might give people more of a stake in whatever they're doing. It might give them more of a, a desire to, you know, contribute to it. And I think that that's actually quite valuable. And that is a lesson that is definitely worth considering and having inform, you know, the policy choices that we make today in the United States or elsewhere in the world. Right? And so the, the the core lessons to take away from this discussion of, of socialism and market socialism in Yugoslavia are that you really can't have, though it promises all these kinds of freedoms, Ultimately, it doesn't look like the kind of freedom that we imagine or that we want, and that ultimately it's going to generate a really powerful state, even if you don't mean to, which certainly socialism and market socialism both don't want to create intentionally very powerful states. But there's a tendency. There's a tendency to. And that's not going to be good for democracy. Yeah, it's just, I think the core notion is that unless there's a clear separation right between for example a state says this property right we do not have control over that that is you know owned privately that acts as a check on the state's power and this notion of communal property while i think is actually intriguing it looks like historically was never separated from this power of the state in a way that actually limited the state's power and that i think is that that is that's the core problem um and and thus when you take that also with our discussion of small governments you get this point that at both ends of the spectrum, very small governments and very big governments, in neither one do you find freedom or democracy. It doesn't work in either case. Right. So it points to the idea, maybe there's some way to 
moderate, find find a middle ground, basically. If it's right. not at either extreme end of the political spectrum, in some ways the far right and in some ways the far left, if you can't find it either places, can you find it somewhere in the middle? Right. And that leads us to a discussion of social democracy. And first of all, it's really important that we point out that there's basically no major successful democratic liberal democratic state in the world right now that doesn't to some extent accept the premises of social democracy right you see them even in the united states and i think you mentioned this right as we were discussing the episode beforehand philip there's no modern liberal democracy that doesn't have a welfare state that exists to protect right the poor and the dispossessed and make sure that right. they are not you know you know totally falling through the cracks whether or not they all succeed at that is is, is a good question but right. there's maybe, an, at least an attempt there. maybe in the mid-1800s you could find one but not anymore and it's also important to point out that social democracies are not socialist even on the further end of the more social democratic states like right. say in northern europe they are capitalist liberal democracies mm-hmm. with features of social democracy and right. they're not they're not socialist so that's just an important caveat to point out that's a, often a point of confusion but with that aside or with that taken care of let's look at the theory of social democracy yeah so one i think really powerful theoretical articulation of what you know the basic tenets of social democracy might look like comes from the professor of political philosophy john rawls he wrote a book called theories of justice and he formulated uh, a thought experiment called the original position and the idea is you know imagine an individual who doesn't know what their role is going to be in a society right they're removed from the society they don't know what their role is going to be they don't know how successful they're going to be they don't know what status they'll have when they're born they don't know who's going to be in charge who's going to make the rules and if that sounds familiar it should because that's what that's the question that philip was asking at the beginning of the episode we stole a little bit from rawls right there and rawls is asking us what kind of a society would you want to live in if you didn't know what society was going to look like before you joined it, how would you set the rules? And you didn't know where you were going to join. And you didn't, right, exactly. And the social democratic response, which shares some ideas with Rawls, but maybe not entirely the same, is that an individual is probably going to hedge their bets a little bit, right? They're going to say, well, I would like to have the opportunity to be successful, make money, you know, enjoy, you know, luxury goods and stuff like that. They're also going to think, well, Maybe I'm just not going to be successful in my endeavors once I enter this society. Maybe I'm not going to be able to be, you know, to succeed at whatever my my personal dream is. And they're going to think, well, I don't want to fall through the cracks. And so they're going right. to want both the possi- the opportunities that exist, right, in a in a, in a in a market economy, the chance to you know develop you know wealth and stuff like that. But they also are going to want a guarantee, right? They're going to want a guarantee that they are not going to live an undignified life because the society is not charitable towards them. Right, and the social democratic argument is. Not just that this is a reasonable conclusion to draw from the thought experiment, but that it's at the end of the day an impartial way of thinking about how society should be organized. Think about how you can build opportunities and guarantees that everyone has has a chance at a decent life. Yeah, and you know I have my problems with Rawls's thought, uh, many, but I also think that it's a really important question to think about: is if you didn't know what your odds were of success, you know, what, how what society would you build? And so in, on that point, it's important to look at what does social democracy look like in practice? What are we talking about here? Yeah. And so let's look at the major features of social democracy first, and then maybe we'll look at the constraints of social democracy. And so the first major feature would be a robust welfare state, 
which would include, for example, right, like pensions, a universal healthcare system, although not necessarily a nationalized one, unemployment insurance, minimum wage, those kinds of things. But crucially, also strong labor unions, right? And this is where, you know, we're bringing in this idea of, you know, extending democracy beyond just the political sphere, where workers have the ability to set up these parallel institutions, which negotiate with, you know, managers and the owners of capital to ensure that workers have good working conditions, fair wages, those kinds of things. And so they democratically decide who's going to represent them and whether or not and how and when what the rules of a union are going to be. That's one that's one way in which that, you know, that sort of democratic spirit goes beyond just the political life. But also what you'll see in a lot of Northern European countries is what is called co-determination or the placement of workers, a certain percentage of workers on the boards of like a corporation, right? So a certain percentage of a corporate board of directors has to be composed of workers, right? And so if you look at those two ways, for example, I think those are nice examples. There, there are other ones, but I think those are two really important ones of how workers can develop some some level of control over their work environment, which I think is really important because I think that, you know, socialism still poses this, you know, potent critique of the ways in which economic neoliberalism can abridge our, our well-being. But this is a way of doing it in a sort of compromised fashion, which I think allows for like, you have these parallel institutions, which are not subject to the authority of the state aside from like regulations, which are not subject to the authority of the state and can negotiate for fair working conditions and fair wages with management. And so with those features of social democracy, there are certain constraints that social democracy places on the individual and their freedoms. And the first of those would be anti-monopoly laws that prevent certain private individuals from, well, monopolizing a, a sector of business. And the idea behind that is when there's a monopoly, it's going to concentrate too much economic power in the hands of one individual, right. and it's going to remove power both from consumers and from workers. Right. Right. And so that's the first constraint, and it's an important one. And another one would be taxes, generally progressive taxes, because when you've got that robust of a welfare state, well, it's going to be expensive to run. Right. So you're going to need to get that money from somewhere. And so it also helps out to smooth out the in income distribution, right? For yeah. example, it's not without flattening the income distribution, it smooths right. it out. Right. And so those two together basically mean that in a social democracy, you can get rich, right? You can be successful, but you can't get as rich as you can in, say, totally neoliberal economic situation or like the thought experiment that we saw in the last episode of Wilt Chamberlain, where Wilt Chamberlain basically right. owns you know, thousands of times more than anyone else in the entire country. Exactly. Right. So you can get, you can get rich. You just can't get as rich because one, you're going to need money from somewhere to fund all these things. And two, if you have some people who are too rich, then those people are basically going to tilt the scales of, of political influence and it's going to damage democracy. So those are the major constraints right. on freedom, say, yeah. that social democracy places. Mm -hmm. But there are some problems, of yeah. course, with everything that we're right. going to be looking at. And the first of those is that... It's boring. <laughs> it is. It's good, but it's boring. Yeah. And, and, and the first of those is that, essentially, social democracy compromises on both freedom and equality. Consciously. Consciously. And... In the small government visions, you got this promise of total freedom, right? And that's very appealing. We want to be free. And in the socialist vision, you got a promise that you will be totally equal. And our 
basic literal definition of freedom is not the same thing, but it, prom- it promises freedom. It promises, but not, yeah. not, not really. And so social democracy, it definitely is less romantic in that it says we're going to have to compromise on both of these things to get either of them. And, you know, that might be a problem that we would have with social democracy. It also might be an advantage, and we'll talk about that in a second. But before we get to there, let's note one other problem that social democracy has, and that is when you have that robust of a welfare state, it's going to demand a complex administrative apparatus to run everything. Implement and maintain the laws. Right. And programs. Yeah. And that's complicated stuff. Right. And it's going to demand a professionalized bureaucracy, people whose career it is to work in these departments administrating these programs and these laws. Exactly. And that's because with something that complicated, it's not likely that you're going to be able to get very competent management just by voting for people based on, you know, their personal campaigning. Right. But it does mean that when you have that much of the state managed by professionals, it is less democratic in a way. Yeah. The people that we elect delegate that work to this professionalized civil service, and they have oversight, right? They get to determine the broad direction, but the nitty-gritty stuff is handled by people who are, you know, theoretically experts in the matter. Yeah, and, and there might be advantages to that, obviously, because competent oh, yeah. managers of complex systems are going to get you better results sure. than, than people who get the job politically rather than through their competence and experience. But there might be advantages to that, and there are advantages to that. But it's also worth thinking about just the trade-off there. You know, Is it worth it to sacrifice some of that democracy to get that effective system? Uh, it's worth being conscious of. Yeah. I think that you know wraps up not just social democracy and socialism, but sort of this two-episode series that we've done on various visions of governing um, societies and, and what they mean for freedom, equality, and democracy. And it, you know, I just think it's would be good before we before we you know sign off to discuss what are the overall lessons we can draw from all of these different types of political orders that we've envisioned. Yeah, I think we can start with small government visions of liberal democracy. And while there are many different conclusions to be drawn from that episode, and if you've listened to it, I'm sure you know some of them. If you haven't, it's and this episode has been interesting, go check it out. You would probably find that one interesting too. But it, to sum it up in a sentence as much as possible, the lesson to draw from small government visions of liberal democracy is that When freedom is maximized, it's going to create inequality, as any of the proponents of small government would tell you. Right. But that that's a problem because it undermines freedom and democracy in the long term. Exactly. It's an unsustainable vision. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, you know, opposite lessons, I think, to be drawn from the example of socialism, right? Equality maximized. I think ultimately in theory and practice cannot give us the kind of freedom that we think about as being the normal intuitive notion of freedom. So it undermines freedom. And that also tends to produce in practice a state that prohibits political democracy, that can't countenance political democracy because it, the, the stakes are too high for it to give up power. And to look at social democracy, what lessons we can draw, 
you might see that we need to compromise on freedom and equality to get either. Right. And that's not just that's not just a lesson of social democracy. It's sort of the lesson that social democracy takes from everything that we've discussed in these past two episodes before that. Right. And that should be clear that you can't really get either of them perfect. Right. Without yeah. losing both of them. Right. And in particular with freedom, I think it's important that, you know, you're not going to find a pristine vision of freedom in any of these visions. Um, in part, I think, because fundamentally we're social animals and the fact that we're social animals generates obligations that we have towards each other, right? By the social relationships that we develop with each other, we have obligations to each other and those abridge our freedom to do whatever we want because we, we develop those obligations to one another. And that's, I, th I think that's a good thing. I think that's an important thing, but it does mean that we aren't, you know, absolutely free to do whatever the hell we want. It just isn't. And the other thing as well, a final point, and this one is important for those of us pragmatic, practical-minded people in politics, is that anyone who tells you that you can maximize both, that you can have a perfect, you know, utopic society, they're selling you a bill of goods, right? Politics necessarily involves trade-offs. You, you know, you lose one thing when you gain another. And the goal is not to, you know, eliminate all the trade-offs and find whatever perfect form of whatever exists, but to find an effective balance, a balance that works for most people, for everyone even. And regarding that balance, sort of the final lesson that might be clear from both of these episodes. And our first one too, I think. Yeah, is that even if you find a balance between freedom and equality, that's not self-sustaining. Even the very best scales have to be recalibrated after enough time. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that because it, a perfect balance can be achieved, that doesn't mean that it's not worth trying. Right. Right. Because when we look at these examples of the more extremes and where they lead, there's value in at least trying to find a more sustainable balance. Right. There's value in trying to build a more sustainable society that we can work on maintaining. Right. Right. It doesn't mean that a decent balance is every bit as bad as a terrible balance. That's all for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to Spectacles. If you'd like to make a comment, visit the link in the show notes. Please read all the further readings that we've recommended in the show notes. Those are the ones that we read to prepare for this episode. And please also go and listen to our other uh, podcast series, Spectacles Insight and Spectacles Focus, for a new way of seeing politics. Thanks for tuning in.